the, the AdBlue problem recently. I had no idea what AdBlue was, and the car I had, diesel car I had, rental car, suddenly comes on. The car will not start in 200 miles unless you stick AdBlue in it. You know, there's no ifs and buts. It's not going to start. So then I started panicking about, what the hell is AdBlue? Are there different types of AdBlue? And apparently, no, it's just bog standard. Ad, so it was very, very simple in the end. I quite this, enjoyed filling it up. But I'd no, never heard of it. No idea was, what it was. Was this your car or was, one, was it one of your rental stock? It's a hire. It was one of my, one of my stock. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It was one of my stock. But I just got completely confused by it. But it was like, it didn't say like in 500 miles. It was quite 200 miles. It's quite unnerving. That seems quite soon to me. That sounds like a threat. It was a threat. The car was threatening, saying, "I am not going. Not even going to. Not going to run slower. It's going to not going to start for you." But literally, it was that. That was like a ransom note. This this car will self destruct unless you give me this yeah, thing I want. I did so feel. This time, this, yeah. this time it was something to get rid of the particulates in the engine. But yeah. but next time it might be five hundred pounds. Because I felt we were a team when we were together driving to matches. But that suddenly it changed the yeah. picture completely. When it is basically was the car and me. And yeah. I felt really disconnected from it. I was unnerved. This you were could... adversaries all of a sudden. <laughs> this could be Chinch's, Chinch's niche for Chinch Motors. Could be, we will not lease or rent you a car that threatens to, uh, to stop midway on your journey. Just abandon or, you on the side of the road. Or maybe have a whole fleet of cars that do threaten you. Yeah, exactly. Just generally, yeah, yeah. Not, not about the ad blue or about fuel. Just generally, drive better! You know, things like that. Just threaten. Threaten drivers. It's good. I think that's, that's the way forward for me. Don't hog the middle lane. You're not overtaking anybody. My car does a little sort of vibrate when you when you go across across the, cattle the, grid. the thing. No, 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 no. The things, oh. you know, the the white bits in the road, the markings. The the white yeah. bits in the you mean the, the, the lane, lane the lanes the lane yes. things yeah it, it yeah. goes as though he said well you shouldn't be doing that it's really it's, it's Mike the car well, I was driving has a thing where it keeps you in lane as well in case you fall yeah. asleep that's really you know in case you. I, I very rarely do it, is move without signalling. Oh. It, like, straightens you back up again, and it's really yeah. kind of... Again, the car is basically saying, I'm in charge here, you're not. Yeah. But, that, but the thing is, Chinch, I'm not going to lie to you, I'm a drifter. I like to drift across lanes. Like, <laughs> like Jack Reacher. Really oh, on the motorway. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, and it makes it really hard, as you feel as though your car's judging you. Yeah, Rory is the, the less cool type of drifter, the more causing like massive chaos with that's... a pile-up on the M6 kind of drifter. I like like to, just... Don't tell. Don't tell Highways England you like to drift around motorways. That's not what just they want to hear, Rory. Drift around motorways and see where I end up. This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Stephen Wyeth. Last Tuesday, I didn't have a baby. With me are Rory Smith. Last Tuesday... He didn't move house. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who <laughs> last Tuesday didn't lose a beloved family pet. Not with us is Hugh Ferris, who last Tuesday did all of those things and is therefore understandably excused. Oh, hello, everyone. Um, I do apologise that I'm not here, there, with you. Um, but Steve may well have outlined briefly, or I hope very dramatically, some of the chaos that has been going on in the lives of the Ferris family, now numbering three over the course of the last week or so. Um, following all that chaos, there is an element of calm, at least, although we are working our way through the cliches that uh, befall new parents, um, the kind of cliches that everybody told us that we'd work through and we rejected um, with a harumph. And then we said to everybody, that won't happen. And now we're going to tell everybody that subsequently has a child that it will happen and we'll get to be really, really snooty as a result. Um, I'd like to introduce you to our son. His name is Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I. He's going to be spelling that for the rest of his life. Uh, Bodhi, say hello. No, no, he's not going to say anything, which is uh, interesting. Um, but this being an audio medium, I don't have to tell you that he's actually downstairs with his mother, who, by the way, if we're talking about cliches, is the most amazing woman ever to walk this planet because of everything that she has been through over the course of the last little while. Um, my son is already one of the, oh, I don't know, top five humans uh, that I'm very, very glad to know, sandwiching probably between... Rory and Chinch. Speaking of which, Chinch, Glenn Hoddle has already been enlisted to come and help with Bodie's weaker foot. Uh, although I'm yet to determine which foot that is. So I hope you have a wonderful time without me. I'm sure you will. Uh, the, the, the structure, the pacing, 
everything will be better without me, as this rambling message would suggest. So hopefully I'll be back sometime soon. And with love from me, from Gemma, and from little baby Bodie, uh, I'll see you soon. I was rather hoping he would deal with the detail himself. I don't know why it's been left to me to embellish allowed- the, the, the drama. Oh, oh, are we allowed to tell people the, the sheer nonsense that has enveloped Ferris's life? Well, the Cliff Notes version is that Bodie Ferris managed to arrive simultaneously 10 days early, but also a week later than he might have done, seven days after Gemma first went into hospital. So it was a fairly laborious week or so at uh, St. Mary's in, in Manchester. Bodie arrived, and this is not an exaggeration, mere hours before the removal lorry turned up outside of their house. However much you tried to say to Hugh and Gemma, it's a really bad idea to move house close to the time your baby is arriving. They, they decided to proceed, and really the chaos enveloped them from that moment on. So yeah, the grandparents, and I think it was Gemma's sister, had to oversee the move. And then if that wasn't enough drama, they had the cats locked away in the downstairs bathroom ready for the move. And one of the removal men accidentally knocked the door open as he was jigging something out. Removing Removing something. And one of the cats escaped. So Hugh spent his first night as a father back sleeping in his empty old house, hoping his presence there would coax the absent feline. Where has my life gone wrong? What is happening to me? Uh, they they have, I'm pleased to say, settled into their new life, their new home. We send them our love and admiration uh, for surviving what was a, a pretty horrific ordeal. I like the way that Hugh says that karma's descended because he's in that two-week bit where yeah, they trick yeah. you, yeah. where the babies trick you into thinking, and, and you, everybody thinks, oh, we've got, we've got a really easy one here. But you haven't. They're just saving up their energy to make the next three to seven years a complete nightmare. Do you feel Bodie's going to be under a bit of pressure as well, not having Ferris in his life, but having such talent like the three of us? And it's a bit like, is it Sergio Aguero's son who has yeah. Diego Maradona as a granddad, Lionel Messi as a godfather? It's a lot to live up to. Do you think Bodie's going to be under pressure to be a sensational writer, co-commentator or commentator or whatever Hugh does? I think it's fair to say that, um, that Glenn Hoddle will have his work cut out, identifying which is the weaker foot. <laughs> But this is, the time, this is the time to start, really, though, isn't it? I mean, I think you, with, with, with a Ferris, you don't have to start early. If you I mean, to have any hope at all. Yeah. Is Gemma any good at football? She, she'll be better than Ferris. Well, there you go. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm hoping that Gemma was an accomplished sports person at some point or another, because, uh, yeah, if he's, if he's getting his sporting genes from Hugh, it is, is not going to work out in his favour. Yeah, no. he'll have to, no. you know, he'll have to, whatever it is Hugh does now, well, he does what I'm doing today, reading stuff off bits of paper. Uh, then Bodie will have to just become very good at that. Anyway, congratulations to Hugh and yeah. Gemma. Yeah, yeah, Hugh, yeah. Hopefully back with us very soon once he has uh, learnt to live with the fact that this blissful first few days of parenthood doesn't last very long and the sleepless nights will be kicking in very soon. And the next time we see him, his his usual coiffured barnet will be everywhere. He'll like a mad professor and there'll be milky vomit all over his clothes. Tremendous. I say this with Hugh's love for, for Hugh but, and Gemma. The, but Hugh's a very orderly person. This is what, I don't know if this necessarily comes through in the podcast. The, the defining characteristic of Ferris, apart from his kind of generosity and his affection and his loyalty and his inability to play, to play football, is that he, he likes, he likes organisation. Like he, 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 they are both. Like th- those two planning a holiday is... I mean, it's a little bit like a kind of brutal dictatorship. Like it is, yeah, it is yeah, everything yeah. is planned out to perfection. Like they know to the minute where they're going to be. They'd actually, they'd actually make excellent uh, dope testers in athletics. Like they, they want to know where people are at any given moment. That is what Hugh and Gemma excel at. And I'm looking forward to seeing what happens when they find out that that is not going to be possible anymore. Because it's going to a full-scale mental break. Because there's a baby grenade been thrown into the house. I think, I think there's elements of it already unravelling. And I, oh, I, really? want, I want to be there. I think we, yeah, we, need to, we need to set up some kind of CCTV system so that we can, we can watch this spectacular implosion in real time. Seeing as I am filling huge responsibilities, I should make sure that we are doing things correctly for the time being. Uh, Chinch, 
the football? Do you know what it is today that we are talking oh, about? Oh, you're not, you're not following the same path. Yeah. I thought you'd be different. I did feel you'd, t- you'd tell me what we're going to be talking about. Was I in on those conversations? Because obviously with babies being born and everything, and cats attacking people, I, no idea what we're talking about. The listeners expect certain bits of the podcast furniture to be in place. Oh, okay. With a heavy yeah. nod towards Euro 2020, we are asking today, can a tournament only ever be disappointing? The World Cups and Euros of our youths, they are remembered through the tinted spectacles of nostalgia. Yet in our more mature years, we seem to do little else but find reasons to criticise. Do our memories distort what's come before and cause us to raise expectations to unreasonable levels for contests, which of course always come at the end of an attritional season? Get in touch, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and on YouTube as well. To your contributions for this week, dear JD, Turk, Dr Cox and the janitor. I am a long-time listener and enjoyed SPM 236. The mixed bag format worked really well for someone with a short attention span like me. I'm sure I won't be the only person to write in to attempt to bust the myth about people swallowing their tongues. It's completely impossible for someone to swallow their tongue or to be hypnotised to do so, as was a plotline in Chinch's favourite detective series. What people see when someone swallows their tongue is a person who's blocked their airway due to a combination of unconsciousness and gravity, Mm -hmm. making the base of the tongue fall backwards to narrow the upper airway. The tongue isn't swallowed, and sticking your fingers in there is a really good way to get bitten. Fixing the problem is a case of using the recovery position or an airway opening manoeuvre to restore a clear airway. You can't teach anyone off the street to pick a pass or take a free kick as well as Christian Eriksen, but literally anyone can learn to do CPR as well as the team who saved his life. Chinch made the uncharacteristically insightful point that it's one thing to learn basic first aid and another having the confidence to use those skills in the moment. The Rias Council UK have an excellent free video game app called Lifesaver Mobile, which uses realistic videos in a choose-your-own-adventure style to teach people what to do and when to use it. Anyway, the whole swallow-your-tongue thing is a big bugbear for medical people, as is going to VAR for Stephen. So I'm glad to get that off my chest. Keep up the good work. Andy Blackmore, who is an A&E doctor and life support instructor in East Yorkshire. Andy, thank you for your service. When did we talk about tongue swallowing? Do you remember we talked about Christian Eriksen? I said, have I experienced anything like it? I remember mentioned Paul Lake. And I know you didn't oh, yeah. swallow yeah. his tongue, but that, that's the term that we use for his airway being blocked. I presume that's... So I, I did I did kind of right. know all that. Yeah. But again, how you actually deal with it is a different story. But that's how we got onto that topic. That's the worst right. thing I'd ever that's... seen when he was knocked unconscious and that happened. I didn't know if I'd not been paying attention and we'd accidentally started a thread where people send us in medical advice. <laughs> But if we are gonna if we are gonna branch out and talk about medical problems, if anyone's got any ideas how I can deal with really itchy hemorrhoids, I'd be it'd be much appreciated. You know, in your fifties, it does cause a few issues. Andy, you've got the email address. Please do. Well, in fact, just get in touch with Chinch directly. We'll uh, yeah, we'll, please. We'll, we'll send you his contact number. Or just send me the cream. Dear Portugal, Germany, France and Hungary. Now, this is a long read, so apologies for paraphrasing. Listening to your Footballing Sons episode, both enjoyable and intriguing, it got me thinking about the time I've spent working in football and the topics we often discuss in my studies, a master's in football coaching at UCFB. I wanted to bring your attention to a book that you may have heard of called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. Rory, is that on your agenda? No, no. I've in not short, heard of that, but I'm interested. In short, the book is about talent hotbeds, 10,000 hours of deep practice triggers, and myelin, the fatty outer layer protecting your nerves. Whilst the 10,000 hours theory has been challenged academically, the other points remain, to my knowledge, still considered correct. The basics of myelin, if you imagine your nerves as a common copper wire, myelin is the protective layer around it. The more you practice, the thicker the myelin. The less you practice, well, the thinner it gets. This can be for any skill, playing the violin, hitting a tennis ball, swinging, soaring, hammering for a manual job, or indeed football skills. The next point is about triggers. The last 10 100-metre world record holders were all a third child or later. The theory is they learned to do things more quickly because they had more people to learn from, and in the case of running, they were chasing bigger, stronger and faster siblings. I've thought for a long time about the nature, nurture and talent nepotism in football thing, but found very few people who are willing to even discuss it. Even in football, for this, I have my therapy group the SPM listeners in whom I often find solace. 
My hypothesis on what you've discussed is roughly this. Trigger, dad plays football, so usually in the time he gets to play with his children, he will revert to what he knows best. Due to the nature of football time constraints and the partner understanding this is what he does, there will be less pressure to do other things with them in that limited time. Deep practice. Because child has footballing interest from an early years foundation, they are already interested and eager to join their team from as early as possible. Hotbed. Clubs do look at siblings and children of players, even if the player themselves hasn't tried to help. As a result of the early trigger, extra opportunity and the subsequent deeper practice, the skill acquisition is higher than average, leading to a large proportion of football-fathered children succeeding. It's not as simple as nepotism, but it's more a case of above-average opportunity. You then throw in the fact that unlike your usual academy hopefuls parents, who would have to give up hours and hours of their time for a player to get through the academy system, players tend to live near a football club or multiple football clubs, and the players' wives' parents are able to be heavily involved in helping to get the kids to training and games. And that eliminates many of the barriers which lead to football dropout. Keep up the brilliant work and all the best. Kind regards. Andrew Hopper Davis. That's it is. That's fascinating stuff. I'm a big fan of obviously science, but are we, are we getting to a point where if science can it kind of explain athletic brilliance, is that in a way you know taking away the magic and the mystery of why people are so incredible at what they do, or is this again how it's going to be? We're going to explain away everything, so then really you're not just watching anything. You think oh, there's the reason behind this is is X Y Z. Is that is that a good thing? Because back. 20, 25 years ago when none of this was around and we saw amazing footballers, we didn't think about nerve endings and third siblings and stuff like this. Is this just how it's going to be? We're going to find a reason to explain away why people are so good at what they do, not just footballers, but all athletes. Are you suggesting ignorance is bliss, Chinch? Uh, in, in my book, yes, because I'm very ignorant. So, and I'm very happy. Uh, the thing is that, that as, as Andrew kind of alludes to, that for a while the 10,000 hours theory kind of was was regarded as being gospel but has now basically been disproven that that isn't true um and i think it's the thing where if you do something for 10 you need to do something for ten thousand hours before it becomes habit to achieve mastery of it right and that i think probably applies in in some situations that that's the that's the minimum that you need to achieve and it's what again like like everything it's kind of the way it's interpreted interpreted is slightly bastardized but the I don't. I don't think it's the case. I sort of. I've. I've played more than ten thousand hours of football in my life, and I am still terrible at football. So it. It doesn't. It's not like oh, if you just do it for ten thousand hours, you'll. You. You will be a master at it. That there are other factors that go in, and I think that even with. I've not read the talent code. It sounds really interesting. That even of with, your, of your ten thousand hours playing football, Rory, how mm. many of them? Don't do inverted commas. Were when you didn't have possession of the ball. Because I, I yeah, think yeah, if you had 10,000, yeah. that, that tends to be, you really enjoy football when you have the ball, don't you? In my yeah. experience, oh, yeah. playing football yeah. with Rory, he doesn't pass often. So generally he has I'm the ball. Trying to, get okay. my time, trying to get my time up. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing, to achieve mastery. That's my, that's my logic. I have 10,000 hours of back heels in my, in my legs, put, put it that way. <laughs> the, um, I think the problem with a lot of it is that there, there is also a... The, the, it can only explain it to a certain point. That would be my issue with it. That, that all of the theories are theories and they're all valid and they're all worth exploring. But I, I wonder if at some point there is a sort of secret source that goes into it too. Did you did you hear the, the story about the Kevin De Bruyne, this pass that he made for the goal in the Euros? And everyone was saying, again, he had his head down and he played this amazing pass. He must have just guessed and played it blind. But apparently then the guy said, no, 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 it's called scanning. It's these really top players. They, again, they don't look at the ball. They, they look at their options. Then they look down again and they play the pass that they've already seen that no one else has seen. And again, it's explaining away. You look at it and you think, oh my God, that's just genius. And then someone will say, well, this is why it's genius. And in a way, I kind of want to know because you find it really interesting that the players can, can work at this level and that's what makes them. But then it's, again, it does take away a bit of the, the mystery of their brilliance as well. So I just wonder which camp you're in. Do you, do you want everything to be explained? Why players are so... Why De Bruyne can do that? Or would you rather just say... He's such an exceptional player, he can do what others do. Or do you need the explanation? I think the explanations are really interesting, but I do wonder to what extent we are we underestimate the role of guesswork, instinct, and I'm just going to put it there and see what happens in football. Have I told you the Les Ferdinand thing? Mm, no. When ITV had the highlights to the Premier League in the in the kind of the, the match of the day lacuna. One of the clips that they used in the initial kind of titles was was Les Ferdinand scoring for Tottenham, and it was from the camera inside the goal, and it was this kind of one of the typical Les Ferdinand finish, emphatic finish with his right foot. But you could see 
from the way his foot was shaped that he was aiming for the other corner. And does he was he was I think he was trying to side foot it to the So he got it wrong. He got it wrong. He just kind of right. hit his foot. Yes. And ever since then I've kind of thought at the elite level, a lot of it is not a lot of it, a significant sliver of it is to do with being able to get into the right place to do the wrong thing. There is an element of that within within players that it's it's that you know they've got the, they've they've worked for years and years and years and years and they've they've mastered their talent to such an extent that when they get six yards out from goal they can completely slice the ball and it looks like they've done it on purpose. Well, actually, this is just to bring it bang up to date. The the Torgan Hazard goal. Did you see that against Portugal? Yep, we did. Where yeah. he hits it, and if you see the the bend on the ball, and if you think, well, he's such he's playing at that level, the elite level, he must have meant to slice across the ball to move it from left to right, and that is a big touch. But actually, I agree with what you're saying. Did he actually just smash it, it, and it did yeah. that, or did he actually intend for that to happen? And I probably think actually he's hit it, and it's done what it's done. He's not that good that yeah. he could actually manipulate it, a ball like that. It's not tennis. It's not Roger Federer specifically well, golfers choosing. Can, golfers can yeah. really manipulate a ball. I think in that situation, what Torden Hazard has done is kicked the ball hard and seen what happened. Yes, and that's and that's not to detract from the glory of of Torden Hazard's ability or from the wonder, the wonder of the goal, but I think you can read too much into it. I think he's hit it as hard as he can, and the ball has has done a little sort I'm of zigzag. All, yeah, I'm always you know goals that kind of slicey goals. You know the ones that are kind of with the instep that are kind of bent and they look. Mm. I think they are again intended, but ones that are kind of hit like that and move the other way off the outside of the bit. I'm always a bit. You sliced that, and it's ended up brilliantly and perfectly. But actually, did you? How many got a really intentionally? Remember Alan Shearer goal? Was it against, against the Netherlands? Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that was probably intent, but very few off the outside of the boot. No, I think Shearer, I, I think Shearer, I think Shearer full on sliced that. Yes, he did. But meant yeah. to? Or you no. think meant to? No. No. Then he, again, then it's another got... one because it's such a hard skill to to control. I think the instep is one. The outstep, mm, not so sure. More on Euro 1996 coming up, I suspect, shortly. Uh, to an email entitled, A Bit More Oomph for Chinch, and our second of the day that says, Dear Germany, France, Portugal and Hungary. I write with my thanks for the continually wonderful podcast that I say for the point in each week when I could do with a bit of cheering up and don't quite know what to do with myself. You chaps never let me down. In the most recent podcast, you discussed potential candidates for a father versus sons 11, and it was noted that the sons would likely lose to their more successful fathers. I wonder if this is perhaps because we are more likely to know a footballing son had a footballing father if the father was successful enough to be significantly noteworthy. In the conclusion to the discussion, Chinch said the sons needed a bit more oomph, so I have endeavoured to source some top draw players with slightly more mediocre fathers. Perhaps the very definition of oomph, as it's the noise you make when he goes in on you two-footed, would be Marco Materazzi, 25 games for Everton, Italy World Cup winner and infamous headbutt receiver, whose father, Giuseppe, made 228 appearances in midfield for Lecce, amongst others. Further oomph can be provided by Romelu Lukaku, whose father, Roger, played in two Africa Cup of Nations for Zaire in the 1990s, as well as having the distinction of playing three seasons for the fabulously named FC Boom in Belgium. <laughs> the addition of two sons whose careers have had more time to blossom, along with their somewhat less stellar but still solid professional fathers, might provide a bit of balance for a more open match. With warm wishes to you all, David M. Jewett. There are a lot of cases like that where players have dads who played to a, to a low level. I mean, Roger Lukaku obviously played to a really high level if he's played in two, two trips of nations. But although I'm not sure FC Boom or a traditional Belgian powerhouse, but you you did get quite a lot of kids whose parents were kind of high level amateur players or who who maybe you know had played four games in League Two or whatever. And the other thing that you see, and Thibaut Courtois is an example of this, and I think the Hazard the Hazard boys might be as well, is kids whose parents are athletes in other disciplines. So Thibaut Courtois' mum, I think, is a Belgian handball international. Was Ian Brightwell, Ian yeah. Brightwell, who I used to play, Robbie Brightwell and Ann Packer. Yes. His, he was a phenomenal athlete, but again, he ended up playing football when he could have done a million other things as well. So, yeah, so having the athletic background in your parents can, can take you a certain way. Was Ann Packer the one who launched that breakaway cricket league? Uh, no, that was Kerry. I don't think right. they're related. Yeah. Who's Ann Packer? 
Uh, Anne Packer was a sprinter, hurdler and long jumper who won a gold medal in the 800 metres and a silver in the 400 metres at the 1964 Summer Olympics. There you go. Congratulations to Anne Packer. Mm -hmm. And finally, dear Dave, Holly, Crichton and Duane, thank you for the continuing high levels and quality content Unlike the match of the day Euros top 10 effort where Micah Richards has to pretend to know who Gerd Muller and Marco Van Basten are. Re-SPM 235 and the following quote. Nigel Clough has had his reputation damaged slightly by not being as good a manager as Brian Clough. Oh, I. In other news, Jeff Van Gogh, not as good at painting sunflowers. Clive Mozart, hardly written any banging tunes for the violin. Dave Da Vinci, doesn't even know anyone called Lisa. Billy Einstein, barely even interested in quantized atomic vibrations. And little Mick Michelangelo, a bit slapdash when decorating his ceiling. I reckon we'll all look a bit crap compared to a genius. I think Nigel did pretty well, all told. Also, wasn't Frank Lampard Sr. a right back? Anyway, great pod. Keep up the good work. Best regards, Rich Reardon in Bootle. So to this week's topic, having leaned heavily on you, the SPM listener, for our content last week, we now return to another rich vein of topical yet timeless soccer talking points, the brain of Rory Smith. Realising Hugh was about to cry off and the burden of chairmanship would fall to me, I did what anyone else in my position would do and simply asked Rory to come up with an idea that was good, but not quite good enough for him to have written a piece on it yet. His response was <laughs> thus. Can a tournament only ever be disappointing if they are the ultimate example of us remembering the highlights of previous competitions? That's not how it works. So basically I use this as a quite long-winded way of workshopping my ideas and then write them and claim all, all of your thoughts for, my, for myself. That's so why did you just steam in and publish your proposals for a 32-team European Championship without running it by us first? Do you know, the, the funny thing about that is that I kind of, me and Tarek were discussing it, and I kind of, I engage with it largely as an intellectual exercise, just to kind of, just to see if I could make it, if I could kind of convince myself. And then by the end, once I put it on, put it, put it on, whatever the digital equivalent of paper is, and then argued about it on Twitter. I now think it's the thing I believe in more than anything else in the entire world. And <laughs> I'm convinced by my own, my own virtue. The, we, we, we can just, we, we, that we may be do it. content. We should do it another time. Week, yeah. We should do it another time. But the, the other thing that I've, I've thought about a lot during the Euros is that in the group stages of any competition, I think that there is a tendency to, to complain that they're not that interesting and that it's all a bit all a bit kind of pedestrian and slightly uninspiring and there's not really been that many good games and everything feels a bit flat. And now obviously this year things are, things are different, partly because the stadiums aren't full except for except for Budapest and, and probably Parken in Copenhagen, which is, has, been as, has been as full as it needs to be. So the atmospheres have been quite, quite flat and a little bit disappointing and that you don't have that sense of occasion. And I also think the fact that the tournament is spread out across Europe, although it would have been... It would have been fun, I think, in, in non-pandemic times. It means you don't have that sense of a country embracing this this huge event and that that sense of carnival and festivity that you get when when the Euros are in France, where all these French cities suddenly are kind of decked out in 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 the the flags of different nations and there's there's a real sense of kind of occasion to it. I don't think that has manifested yet. And it does always change in the knockout phases. Once big teams start going out, once once shots start happening, you know, the Czechs have beaten the Dutch, the Portuguese have gone home, the quarter by the time, you know, within a couple of days of people listening to this, the quarterfinals will be happening. Um that always makes it feel much more like a tournament. Mm -hmm. But I think there's also something else at play, which is that every tournament at the start for the first 10, 12 days is basically living up to our memories of previous tournaments. And obviously over the course of the two years between each tournament, and then you know four, six, eight, ten years since, since whichever one maybe is, is our high bar, we forget the fact that the group stages of that tournament were probably quite boring as well. And, I, and I, it just made me think that all tournaments to an extent are cursed to live in the shadow of these sort of rose-tinted memories of, of all of our not just not just the highlights of the montages. I think basically we remember things as montages now. Yeah. You know, if you go through Euro 2016, you will pick out 10 great goals 
and some pictures of Portugal celebrating and some pictures of, of England being devastated and Iceland doing the thunderclap. And you'll think, oh, God, Euro 2016 was a great tournament, wasn't, wasn't it? But at the start of Euro 2016, we were all complaining about the fact that the format was rubbish. We were all complaining about the fact that Albania might get through despite finishing third. Half the games were dreadful because some of them involved Switzerland. And it felt like it was, oh, this is awful. This is nothing compared to the 2014 World Cup. But then at the start of the 2014 World Cup, Admittedly, there, that's maybe not a great example because you had the Spanish getting beaten within, I think, the first three days. The Spanish lost 5 1 to the Dutch, and you felt, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, but even that was kind of, well, a lot of these teams don't belong to really belong, belong here, and a lot of these teams aren't good enough, and the games were all a bit cautious. And it's the same throughout, throughout history, really, that, that all the tournaments, that every tournament, initially is received badly because what we're comparing it to is our memory of previous tournaments and our memories of previous tournaments are false and on the flip side the tournaments that have really bad reputations for being boring italia 90 world cup 94 weren't at the time because they mm. they felt like they felt like they still felt like tournaments and it was the fact that they're remembered as these really boring tournaments i think is actually not necessarily a reflection of of how good they were to an extent, it's the fact that the montages maybe weren't up to scratch. You can often age somebody by which World Cup in particular is their formative World Cup. It, it was nineteen eighty six for me, Chinch. What would be the seven seventy eight? I know I'm I'm that much. I, I do. Rem, I I roughly remember the original Olympics. I don't remember the original Olympics. I don't remember eighty two at all. Eighty six. Because I, yeah, I was kind of, well, I started playing 87. So probably that would be the one I would remember as well. 82. I just don't remember 82 at all, strangely. So I have... again, I, I was just thinking about the, the, the coverage, clearly, of competitions has has been heightened, hasn't it? Every yeah. game is covered. There's so much conversation on so many different levels about every single game. So as kids, what we watched or say what I watched, you weren't, you weren't immersed in just how good or bad the games were or the tournament was. You just tended to watch them and see them for what they were. And it was an international tournament. I tended to in, in, enjoy them. And that's what my memories would be. But now kids watching this tournament, say, and with with social media and everything else, and the amount of talk about game, are kids allowed or youngsters allowed to probably have the experiences that we had back in the day or, or because of the coverage and what they're immersed in? Do they lose that innocence of just sitting back yourself or with your mates and watching a game and not then having it analysed to death and then seeing what everyone else is saying on social media about how dreadful this match is or how bad this first half was. Is that, is that the problem as well in terms of the courage, uh, coverage in the world that we live in, that kids won't see tournaments the way that we maybe saw them 20 years ago? Well, the, the reason I mentioned formative World Cups is probably for most of the our contemporaries, it would be the 1990 World Cup. Yeah. A lot of our friends, the people we, we hang hang out with, and as, as Rory rightly points out, in terms of the quality of the football, it it wasn't the greatest. We we ne we know that now, having reanalyzed it. But at the time, it was phenomenal, despite the fact that that was a twenty four team tournament, where it was two points for a win in the group stage. The holders, Argentina, reached the final despite finishing third in their group. So something that we have decided we dislike intensely about the Euro now was something that was a feature of a World Cup that we all remember incredibly fondly. And England won their group there despite only winning one of their group games. And that was a 1-0 win over Egypt. So that there were lots of things about that that weren't great. The the, the the knockout game against Belgium, the, the, the famous David Platt winner, was a terrible game of football lit up by that moment right at yeah. the end of extra time. Yet we choose to ignore all the negative aspects of that World Cup and remember it for those, those standout moments mm -hmm. that we see over and over again. It's partly because you have to separate the, the tournament as a whole from your memories of how your team did in it. So the reason, like you say, that the, I don't think the football in Italian 90 was nearly as bad as people say it was. I think, I think it was tournament football. I think, to be honest, most tournaments are the same in terms of the quality of their football. There were, there were significant differences in the sense that you still had the back pass rule. So you still got goalkeepers just picking the ball up and holding it for as long as possible and teams trying to kill games like that. that there, were, there were differences in that sense to, to the modern game. But bear in mind that the, 
the Italian anti World Cup wasn't like the first tournament where they introduced the backpass rule. That's just what football looked like at the time. That was what we were all used to. You accepted that part of the game was players passing the ball back to their goalkeeper to try and waste time. And that two years later, they rightly got rid of it. The, the, the fact that England did well is why that tournament is remembered fondly. If England go out in the last 16, if Enzo Schifo scores in a spectacular volley in the, in the 109th minute or whatever it was to put England out in the last 16, you do, Pete Davis doesn't write a book about it. You don't get kind of this kind of lionisation of, of the heroes of 1990. You know, Stuart Pearce and Chris Waddle don't become kind of cultural figures because... The gazetteers to, to pick the most yeah, obvious yeah. symbol of that tournament of all. But what did you? But happen. what did you two feel at the time that it was happening? Well, so this is this is I think what's really important is that that all of this to me is a function of our world weariness as adults. So I yeah. want to ask yeah. Steve about the much more important Rory. But my memory of Italia ninety was was not only kind of being swept away by England doing well, which you know my dad was informing me was a rare thing to happen at a major tournament. But was also the the kind of excitement at seeing Roberto Baggio dance through the Czech defence. It was the, how old were you in nineteen ninety, Rory? If you don't mind I was, me asking, I was eight. I turned eight, eight. during perfect. the tournament. The perfect, the sweet well, spot it. for football the watching. Spot. So I'd been Italian ninety is not my first football memory, and but I I would have been at the exact age to be to have kind of the attention span of actually to actually watch the games. Yeah. To want to learn about all these players that I'd never heard of. I had a sticker album, it was very exciting. And you could kind of engage with the tournament in that way. But I remember being fascinated by, yeah, by Baggio, by Toto Scalacci, by even by the teams that didn't do very well, by kind of, I mean, the fact you had that iconic first game where, where Cameroon beat Argentina, that was, and the colour of it all, the fact yeah. that you had these teams wearing green, red, and gold, whereas everyone in England played in, in blue or red or white, and that was it. You That's kind of had a really good of colour. Yeah. That's a really good point. I remember. And the, the other thing about that game at the San Siro, that opening game, was the incredibly high camera angle. It yeah. felt like you were suddenly watching football from an entirely different perspective. And that, as, as well as the goal, Oman Biek scored the goal. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. As well as the goal, the sending off was an iconic moment from that game. Claudio Canugias hurdling, what, two challenges and then being wiped out by the third. Benjamin Madsen. Yeah, because it was that was again felt like something that I hadn't seen see. before. Yeah, you don't see that, and and I think I think for kids, you are watching it with these kind of open eyes. So my nephew has just turned twelve and has has been watching football on TV kind of religiously for probably four or five years, and I suspect that for him it will be the twenty eighteen World Cup that that will be the one that he remembers when because that was the sweet spot. He was ten. He it was all a new world, with the exception that. I went into Italia 90 not having heard, basically not having heard of any of those players. I would have been vaguely, dimly, I had a book, a European football yearbook from 88, 89, which I bought in a charity shop in Dumfries in Scotland and learnt all the names in it. But, you know, I'd never seen Claudio Canigia play. And that was, you know, he was, Canigia was one of the big stars of world football at the time. You would never have seen him play. There was no way to see him play. So would that be well, different for, say, a 10-year-old today yeah, watching a tournament? Again, this, again, the coverage, the social media, everything, people's involvement well, in it, even at a young there, age, is so different. There is not, I don't think kids now, and I don't, I, this is where I think we should talk about, about Rory. George, I presume, is probably a bit too young still, but... I, I think that kids now don't have that sensation of the scales falling from their eyes. Of, of saying, inno- you've got to watch it. It's the innocence, I think, yeah. which you watch it with, which is the key thing, yeah? Of this, this kind of sense of there is this whole world out there that I've yeah. never experienced before yeah. and it's magical because yeah. partly to so many of the players are in the Premier League, partly because the vast majority are in the Champions League, so you've seen them before, and mainly because you, you, will, have, you will have played with them on FIFA, you will probably have some sort of match attacks yeah. thing that involves yeah. them, that's yeah. how you absorb football. And you, you will be able to access their highlights all the time. So to be honest, there'll be kids who are the equivalent of me in, in 1990 who now not only have heard of... I mean, I don't know who the, this tournament's Claudio Canigia is. I don't know, Patrick Shit. Can you imagine the poor child that's an equivalent of you today? I know, depressing. The, um, but there'll be kids there who, who not only have seen Patrick Shit play, yeah. they will have a, a, decent, a, a decent grasp of what his shortcomings are. And to be honest, they'll have a price in mind for what Newcastle should, should buy, <laughs> buy him for in the summer. <laughs> I tell you what I found interesting. You know, talk about the colour that that the Van Basten volley, which I think really is kind of the the Euros benchmark, yeah. isn't it? it, it can, That's the eighty eight Euro, isn't it? It yeah. is, it is. But again, if you're thinking about it, someone to, again, it's just me. But if you talk about the Euro, that that volley, the, but actually the colour, the kits, 
Rude Hullet's bouncing dreadlocks. That's what I, I just again the, the the how green the pit again whether that's again I'm remembering it as as when I saw it in 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 real time or whether that's I still see that now the color the orange it's extraordinary. So maybe that, that is what kind of imprints on you. And that's what people say about 1970 that that Brazil team were ah, obviously yeah. hugely special, like massively special, wonderfully talented. You know, the, the 4-1 in the final against Italy is, is probably the, certainly the greatest final display of all time, apart from maybe AC Milan in the 1994 Champions League final. Um, it, it was this kind of magical, transcendent moment of the greatest football team that had ever played. But the thing that made it, made it so memorable colour. was the fact that it was in, it was in colour. Yeah. That yeah. You, you got the... And it wasn't even good colour. It wasn't like... You know when you watch like Ultra HD now and it's a bit like, this is too realistic. This is frightening me. I feel like I'm in some sort of simulation on a big TV, which I only get to see in shops. The... the um, <laughs> but that was like that lurid green of the pitches and the, the kind yeah. of... The blinding yellow of the Brazilian shirts yeah. and that yeah. deep blue of Italy... Yeah. People hadn't. It wasn't just that, that this was the greatest football team the world had ever seen. It was the fact that people had never seen football in right, colour no. like that before. Good point, it's yeah. the images it imprints on your mind, and I yes. think you're certainly right that you know for, for what was 1990 for you, Rory. For my Rory was 2018. He was seven, so only a little bit younger than you would have been in 1990. And certainly, the, I think the thing he enjoyed most about that World Cup was the stickers, was collecting mm. the Panini stickers, finishing the sticker album at great expense both in terms of financially and time. You can't put a price on a kid's happiness, Steve. And and, and it's four hundred and eighty four pounds. <laughs> and I don't I wish it was only that much and and I don't cost me that much in stamps swapping stickers with people by via post. Uh, but the, I don't feel like they he was engrossed in the games in the way that you would have been in nineteen ninety. Mm. But certainly the experience of learning about players is still there because yeah. definitely like Luka Modric from England's semi-final defeat by Croatia is someone who has really sort of lingered with him in terms of who he is, what he's capable of doing. You know, most importantly, what he looks like. He's a distinctive looking guy. So that mm. really stuck with him. And a bit like we would have had in 1990, he had that experience of England losing in a semi-final. So that crush, that that bit, that slow build through the tournament of something that might be possible and then that crushing disappointment at the end, which I think is important for every child to learn. Did, 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 both, did both Rory's... Yeah, I was going to... Did both Rory's cry? Rory, did you cry as an eight-year-old when England were knocked out? And again, Steve, Rory, did he cry in 2018 when England were knocked out? There must have been tears. Rory was already a hipster in 1990, so he was probably supporting West Germany. I yeah. think, I he, think had a, I... he had an Andreas Bremer shirt. <laughs> I, lo- I loved Andy Bremer. No, do you know who I loved in that tournament? Sergio Goitachea, the, the Argentinian keeper who, who came in for Neri Pompido. Just Pompido Why? got injured. Why? Because Deutsche, does he was this? He there was a kind of everyman quality to, to Deutsche. It was his, it was the sort of story. At eight a, year old, you saw the everyman quality yeah, of an was, Argentinian I was, goalkeeper. I was all about people's everyman qualities. The um, <laughs> no, it was the, it was the sort of story that an eight year old could understand. Was that Neri Pompido was the first choice Argentinian goalkeeper? Sergio Deutsche, he got injured. Deutsche came in, so you understood that right. This isn't the first choice keeper, and he just kept saving penalties. Just saved loads of penalties. And that's that. That's the one chance that a goalkeeper has to be kind of to catch the eye. And suddenly you're like, oh my god, who's this guy? He's just brilliant at saving penalties. Goalkeepers don't save penalties, but he does it all of the time. And I think it's little things like that that really captivate you as a kid. That these these slightly strange, slightly curious stories that that only really tournaments produce because over the course of a league season or even the span of a Champions League, those things don't happen or they get sort of blended into the hole whereas over the course of a month suddenly it's like well Sergio Dolce has had the best month of his life and is now kind of this goalkeeper who just saves penalties I think I did cry when England got knocked out and I'm not I, I'm not certain and I know that it wasn't long afterwards that that I was delighted that England weren't in a tournament at all but like <laughs> because USA 94 was which people loathe but I I loved USA 94 and I loved it because without any of the home nations apart from the Irish there, who technically aren't a home nation, and I think we should respect their wishes by not referring to them as a home nation, the focus was on everybody else. Mm-hmm. There wasn't this kind of, and you see it now watching, obviously normally I'm at, a, I'm at a tournament. This is the first time I've experienced a tournament at home since 2008. 
And you see it now that like you'll have like a big you know Portugal Germany will be on TV, and yet the halftime analysis is all about England and Scotland. You think, well, who cares? Like I don't want to talk about like this, this isn't relevant. I want to tell me about Ruben Diaz. I don't I don't want to know about whether Marcus Rashford's fit. That's for tomorrow. And the fact that, that none of that happened in USA ninety four meant that yeah, as a presumably very annoying child who was interested in foreign football, you. People were talking about Luis Enrique and Mauro Tassotti and whether Nigeria could get to the quarterfinals and Diego Maradona's dope test and, you know, and Georgi Hadji and Christo Stoichkov and this weird, bald Bulgarian striker who kept, kept scoring headers, Jordan Lechkov. And you, you just had that, it was as though that world wasn't occupied, that space wasn't occupied by England. Mm-hmm. And so there was even more of the world on show. And, one, and once again, football looked weird in America. The goals were really deep. You speak to anybody who remembers USA 94 really well. Mm. And what they will tell you is that the goals were amazing. The actual nets were pinned back so far that every, every shot that went in seemed to billow beautifully. And football didn't look like that. In, in England at the time, yes. it looked like yeah, those yeah. stupid goalposts at the Dell, w- which were basically just straight down. Well, I, mean, I think, the, they, I think they, the goalposts in '78 had like black ring. Did they have black rings yeah, around yeah. them as well? And the netting. Yeah. It's funny how you mentioned all this. I remember it as, as a kid because I was again so old that when I played for, we didn't have nets. You, no. you probably the schools you went to. And all, what do you mean no? The schools that nets. you went to and stuff. You always had nets, and you always wanted to billow a net. I never scored a lot of goals, but that's what they were there for. And having nets when you played a match against another school, having nets. And I, I agree. Since the nets are too deep now, I like the the sloping forty five degree. Do you trample it so the ball goes in and out? You know, bounces in. I do like yes, an angled <laughs> net. But it's weird fun- how these things. Why do they stick with you? That's a function of your age. Is that's what to you a goal looks like? It, it bounces yeah. back out from a from an angled a taut angled net. Yes. Whereas to me, it billows and nestles softly. Got to caress the, the ball and keep yeah. it in there. Well, yeah. uh, for, for me, a goal is not a goal unless it's got those little hoops in the top corner. The the staunching yes. that if you hit the ball perfectly, it rattles. Do you remember the Trevor Brookie one? Didn't the, the ball get stuck exactly in it? Bro- yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that, you must have you must have nearly orgasmed when that happened, Steve. Were you old enough? To, oh, I just was straight out practicing it. Just trying to just just trying to get it there. yeah just trying to get it right myself well look because you mentioned you mentioned the, <laughs> what the shooting of the oh forget it <laughs> you mentioned the goal frames but is that another thing like the the sort of those iconic moments from from major tournaments are the great goals and i remember thinking when patrick schick scored that that wonder goal for the czech republic against scotland that oh thank goodness finally this tournament has had its like eye catching goal yeah. moment. It's it's James Rodriguez cushion on your thigh pivot volleying off the underside of the bar moment because major tournaments need those kind of goals because that's what's going to get shown over and over again. You know what? That's what's going to do. You, you almost you form an opinion in your mind that at the the major tournaments of your youth all of the goals were bangers. Exactly. That, and that's the problem, that we, we, we remember Lothar Mateus and Baggio yeah. and Scalacci from Italia 90. You don't remember the fact that in most of the games, well, loads of the games finished nil-nil. And that you, know, that you don't remember sort of whichever one the second Italian one was against the Czechs or whichever one, I think the Germans beat Yugoslavia 5-0 or something, or the, or the Germans beat somebody 5-0. You don't remember Thomas Hassler sort of scrambling one home from three yards because that's what most goals look like. But the other thing where I think that I do wonder if 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 the nature of modern football predicates against this stuff is that apart from the, the fact that the stadiums are empty, which, which obviously we have to kind of take into consideration for this tournament. Take Russia in 2018. Those, those, if you weren't there, you wouldn't have known that Kazan was this wonderful melting pot of a city that was that was kind of semi-European, semi-Asian. You wouldn't have known that Samara was was baking hot, just utterly oppressive heat. That I mean, I, I don't think I've ever been as hot as I was in Samara, except maybe as hot as I was in Sochi, which was ridiculous. You, the state inside the stadiums, they all just look like stadiums. They all look like they're all identical. Mm. Whereas in a world before the uniformity of design of stadiums, where, where, where what happened in other countries was that they want stadiums to... Basically, everyone wants their stadium to look like the Stadium of Light in Lisbon or the, or the Emirates. That's what everyone's going for. It's, it looks a bit like that. In a world before kind of the uniformity of pitches, before teams were all outfitted by Nike and Adidas off a, off a template, mm-hmm. before we kind of became familiar with all the players, before we, we you know before you could computer-generate all these stadiums on FIFA and make them look unerringly realistic... 
that shot of the of the new and the alien was what kind of imprinted those images on your mind. And I don't think because football is so centralised now, I don't think that that happens anymore. So even in South Africa in 2010, where a lot of the stadiums were really different and had been designed to be different, although they're all white elephants now, the inside the stadium, it just looked like a normal, this was like, well, it's just a football match. It, everything looks the same as it does in, in Austria and Switzerland two years before, or as it would have done in Germany. They, they're, all the stadiums are the same. And I think that's a real problem. I remember going to the Cup of Nations in 20, I think in 2011, no, maybe 2013, to do a story, it was in South Africa, to do a story on what they were using the stadiums for two or three years after. And I saw, I happened to see Ethiopia play Zambia in, in Polokwane. And that was the only time in 13 years of football journalism and 38 years of being, or 39 years now, of being a football fan that I'd seen a team that played a style that I just didn't recognise. Ethiopian football doesn't work like European football. They don't play in a way that we would be able to kind of interpret tactically. And that's just all the, all the players are basically based in Ethiopia. They, they develop their own kind of idiosyncratic style. They're quite good. They were, that team was quite good. I think they lost to Zambia, but they how were quite did, good. How would you describe it? Well, they, they, there was a lot more dribbling. Okay. There was a lot less positional discipline. There was a lot more kind of rotation of position. It was, they didn't really play to watch. Ball. It was quite fun, yeah. It was, yeah. It was quite, quite refreshing. And they were te- technically very good, but it was just that they weren't kind of playing a counter, you know, a four-three-three counter press. It was just like, well, they had this big number eight who looked, who was a bit like Tom Huddleston, I suppose, who sort of sprayed balls, but then occasionally would go on these long meandering runs. They'd get to the byline and instead of crossing it, they'd turn it back, a bit like Barcelona. And it, it was just, it was obvious that they they were not playing a kind of a particularly European influenced game, whereas yeah. everybody else plays like a European yeah. team. Everyone tries to play like a European team. Mm. So even Brazil and Argentina aren't different anymore. They're just their version, the South American versions of European teams. And I think that all of that has been lost. And I wonder if that impacts the way that children fall in love with with these competitions. Well, it because, has to. If you have, yeah, if you've got that yeah. uniformity of stadiums and kits and styles, and it's bound to, isn't it? It's all going to become a bit vanilla, isn't it? And everything. It all looks every... a bit like the Premier League. Yes. Yes. So look, in in seven or eight years' time, when our absent friend Hugh Ferris is sat down. Uh, watching the World Cup in Antarctica with Bodhi, which will be his formative tournament. Do you, will he in any way be able to get the same experience that we got in 86, 1990? Or, or has, has that, the, the colour, the fascination, the new names, the new faces, the, the exposure to new footballing ideas, will... Will it all be too uniform by then for it to resonate? And, and will Bodhi have watched so much football between now and that point that that nothing will seem exceptional? My guess is that for all the things we've just talked about, which are just kind of middle-aged men complaining about how things aren't as good as they used to be, <laughs> there is still a there is still a magic to a tournament. And I think that the one thing that's not gone is the fact that it's all encompassing, that it's on it's on terrestrial TV. It's um, there's games at two, at five, at eight, and you get swept away in the fact that there's just football on constantly. To the extent that when that day that um, the England's group finished and the one of the day in the in the group stage where there was only one game on, effectively because the two games were at the same time, you're a bit like, oh, what am I meant to do? There's no five o'clock kickoff. There's no two o'clock kickoff. This is dreadful. Um, and I think that's the thing that maybe hooks kids more than anything. But it's just it's important to remember. I think it's important to remember all this stuff that that there's a reason that the, the tournaments of yesteryear seem so special to us. And it's not to do with the quality of the football. So I actually don't think, to, I don't think the quality of football, I don't actually think quality of football is a thing that exists at all in any context. I think it's complete nonsense. That what we want in games is not necessarily that it, for, it to be te- for them to be technically perfect or for them to be sort of four, three thrillers constantly. I think it's the variety of games that you get. It's the contrast in styles. It's the states. It's the jeopardy. It's the tension. That's what makes tournaments special. And the fact that in a group stage, as it's just getting underway, we think, well, this isn't as good as, 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 as the previous tournament or as this tournament that we remember from our childhoods. It's purely and simply because we are, partly as we're remembering highlights, but also because we're remembering how those tournaments made us feel. Mm. And only, you only get one. You only get one tournament that makes you feel like that, that kind of really, really captures your imagination and everything will pale into, into insignificance compared to it because it's not about the what the tournament itself is like. It's, it's to do with how you're responding to the tournament. And on that happy note, we end having once again 
failed to draw any significant <laughs> conclusions. It's time I, for I never. Think, I think I think we have, Steve. I think we have this time. I think we've we've uh, really? we've got to the yeah. I think so. Have you not been listening to what Rory's been saying? I felt like no. we just I, basically. We just, I felt like we just established things were better in Italy in 1990. No, I don't think we were saying. Things. I don't think we were saying because I, I think we still saw that things weren't perfect. But again, I, I think we've got to the. Uh, I, I've I've written a lot down here that I'm now going to put in the bin. <laughs> it is time for never mind, Jack and Ori. What a soccer story! This is when Andy usually tells us a tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed, but instead. Rory Smith has volunteered to fill the void. So I was I was talking not too long ago with a member of the World Cup 1998 England team, quite a high-profile member of that team. And we were discussing, I can't remember how it came up, but we were discussing the great free kit takers of all time. English free kit takers, English-based free kit takers. Oh, this is going to be embarrassing. Of all time. I can tell, I can oh, tell. He's, blush, he's blushing yeah. already, look at him. Yeah, oh, stop it, really, stop so we, it. So we kind of worked through some of the obvious ones. Beckham obviously came, you know, came out with his with his reputation yeah, enhanced from the conversation. Yeah, People, yeah. Matt Letizia got yeah. a mention, yeah, great free yeah. t- free kick taker. I pitched Gianfranco Zola. Thought he had a wonderful free kick technique. Yeah, Zola. Yeah. Um, we discussed a little bit about Ronaldo, the fact that he scored, a, you know, a few spectacular ones, but his his ratio, let's be honest, not great. And then we start, we started to think about kind of some of the other the other lesser lesser lights of the free kick taking world who maybe warranted a bit of a bit of um, credit. And so m- my first suggestion, obviously, was was the obvious one. Uh, Morton Gantz Pedersen. Yes. Who um, who was a brilliant free kick taker. And I think at one point had scored more free kicks in the Premier League than anybody else. Yeah, I was always a big fan of MGP. Yeah, he was not, not a high-profile player, but had a real kind of special skill. And then I thought, like, out of loyalty, I should throw <laughs> Obligation. In... <laughs> partly out of obligation, but partly... For content, and also because I wanted, I wanted to know whether whether kind of, kind of, it, the reputation that it was well deserved had had stayed with this player all that time. And I said, well, what you know, what did you make of Andy Hinchcliffe? Because he was a bit of a free kick specialist, wasn't he? And and look, to be honest, what I was expecting was him to say, yeah, he was all right. He was all right. Nothing special, but he was all right. Like he could take a free kick, but you know, there were better. And I thought thought that would probably be fair enough. And this is someone that Chinch called a teammate and possibly a friend. And he just looked at me. Well, he won't be after this, will he? And he went, Andy Hinchcliffe. And I went, yeah. No, hang on a minute. Was that that the actual tone he used? (laughs) Spot on that exact tone. And, And he went, Andy Hinchcliffe. And I went, yeah. And he went, did he take free kicks? Oh, no. I went, yeah. He strawed a few. I don't know how many, but he strawed a few. And he went, nah, he's nowhere near this conversation. What are you, you must be joking. Andy Hinchcliffe. I'm sure was, he didn't say all those words. You're putting was, words into whoever this person is, his mouth. And it, was, it was the sheer incredulity of the idea that Andy Hinchcliffe might warrant. Right, so right. Whether Chinch has maybe, maybe been, been lying to us about have you no 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 have you got you've got contact details for this person can you can you can right okay i'm going to send you the free kick i scored against queen's park rangers show that to this inverted commas fool and see what he thinks that he i'm sure did he take free kicks by any chance did he he stored stored a few yeah a few okay was he was he a connoisseur of the free kick or not really not necessarily what he was known for, but... but he doesn't have the grounds. He doesn't. He doesn't have the experience or the quality. He's, he's on shaky ground straight away. I'm going to send you. You must have seen it. The free kick pitch QPR. I've got it saved, got it saved on my just phone. say to him, "That's Andy Hinchcliffe. Pick the bones out of that, whoever you are." That is literally the one free kick that he scored in his career. Oh no, there's another one. I scored in a. Oh no, that was in training. <laughs> and I scored in a reserve match as well. That was a brilliant free kick, but nobody saw it. Rory, with a with a chinch themed soccer story, yeah, exactly, yeah, a yeah. chinch delivered soccer story. Please keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. And many thanks to Rory and Andy. We collectively, hopefully, with Hugh, will be back with you again very soon indeed. Was this, think, Rory, just to clarify, I'm not, obviously we're not going to name names here, but was this a, a lesser light of the World Cup 98? No. Or was it, it was a leading light. Leading light. But I, I think we still, if you're talking to David Beckham or Matt Letizia about free, they, I've, I've told the story of that, that England training session when I put them to shame 
when Ian Walker was a mere spectator as I fizzed balls into the top corner. Ask them about my free kick. They'll probably remember that session and how, how apple-cheeked they were with embarrassment when they knew that they were just... They, were just, they thought they were good until they came across me. Chinch, I, I promise you this, that if I ever get a bit of FaceTime with David Beckham, yeah. I, I, I will ask him that question. Letizier, we must be and able to track once, Letizier down. Once I'm double vaccinated and therefore able to see Matt Letizier, I will, <laughs> I will, I will put the same question to him. Because then you're talking about free kicks. You can't say to a goal scorer or a, a centre-half and ask that person about freak something that they didn't really do regularly or brilliantly i i why are you smirking there's no need to smirk i just well, i think the person do you see person what i'm saying you, you see again i don't think he's fully qualified whoever this person might be this this fly by night i don't know who it is but anyway we probably don't see him on on tv a lot anyway i, I don't think he's qualified to to have to use such a higher tone look at how high my voice is to use that type of tone <laughs> and mention my name is unacceptable